Hello again. I'd like to introduce Donald Rothberg. He's been here before, and it's a real pleasure to have him back again. Um, he's a member of the Teachers' Council at Spirit Rock Center in California. He has practiced insight meditation since 1976 and also received training in Tibetan Drojin. Dzogchen. Dzogchen. I can't read it. And Mohammed. Mahamudra. Yeah. Practice. <clears throat> he's, on the, he's also taught on the faculties of the University of Kentucky, Kenyon College, and Saybrook University. He currently writes and teaches on mindfulness and loving kindness, meditation, and the application of these and other practices to transforming the judgmental mind, speech, and communication working with conflict, social service, and social action. He mentioned his book, which is on the back table. Thank you for coming. Yeah. So thank you, Terry, and um, thank you, everyone. It's uh, good to be back here. I was. Uh, here for about two weeks uh, last year in May, recognize a lot of familiar faces and um, do not recognize the locale. <laughs> I was uh, entirely meeting at the, I guess the old place, the, the Zen Center. Yeah, so this is very spacious and uh, yeah, and I guess closer to town, which is advantageous for some people. So again, very good to be here. Uh, I just came from uh, teaching a retreat at Vallecitos. Came here on Sunday. The, the retreat was actually on uh, wise speech and skillful speech, connecting that with our practice. And um, I'll weave some of that in probably at some point in the talk. Um, what I want to explore could be said to be right at the center of our practice. And the theme is transforming reactivity in daily life. It's right at the center. If I had to identify what the center of our daily practice is, on the one hand, it would be cultivating wonderful qualities, developing them further, mindfulness, wisdom, kindness, patience, compassion. And on the other hand, quite related to how we develop those qualities, is working with the challenges which particularly manifest in what we can call reactivity. I'm using reactivity as a translation of dukkha. And I'll explain that a little bit more, in more depth. And I'm really centering on one of the fundamental teachings from the Buddha. He said, I have taught one thing and one thing only, dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. Dukkha is usually translated as uh, suffering, which I think is problematic in certain ways, even though it gets at something usually translated as suffering or sometimes unsatisfactoriness or stress. And 
in the original setting of the India of the Buddhist time, uh, there were there was a primary meaning of the word dukkha, which was a, a ordinary word, simply meaning the unpleasant. And so one would t use the word dukkha to say, I had an unpleasant meal. And one would use the word dukkha, or I had an unpleasant interaction. It was also related uh, etymologically to an axle in a wagon or chariot that was off-center and hence would give one a bumpy ride. And so dukkha is related to bumpy rides in life. <laughs> and when the Buddha, in, in one place, he talks about dukkha in a number of different ways, which I think can be confusing. You know, it's, it's true that the Buddha in the discourses which of course were not written down for 500 years. And only later people tried to systematize them. When you look at the discourses, there's not a, you know, there's not always a consistent theory, right? He talks about the same themes in different ways. And there are of course some very um, common teachings, but he can use the word dukkha in six different ways some of which are more central, some of which are less central, and not try to have some you know, precise system. That happened later, in the later development of Buddhism. People tried to say, well, it's not precise, and let's make it precise, and this is unclear, and let's make it clear. And uh, later traditions did that, sometimes helpfully, sometimes in ways that were probably not great. Anyway, so for the Buddha, one of the core teachings of dukkha that you may have heard was that there are three forms of dukkha. One is called dukkha dukkha. <laughs> and this is where, this is what we would normally call the unpleasant. This is where the Buddha in certain passages talks about old age, illness, death, and so forth. These are the unpleasant experiences in life where there can be what we would call some suffering. The Buddha also talked about the unpleasant quality at times of change. This is vipari nama dukkha, the unpleasantness of change. And of course, that's only the case where we move from the pleasant to the unpleasant. He said that was a kind of dukkha, a kind of difficult experience. And of course, when we have unpleasant experiences and they change, that's not dukkha. That's sometimes, we sometimes say that uh, we like impermanence when we're having something difficult and we don't like it when we're having something pleasant. So that's the second form that the Buddha talked about. And the third form is called sankhara dukkha. And that's maybe a familiar term for many of us and sankhara refers to essentially, you know, if we would say it in ordinary English, it's basically the mental and emotional states. It's the series of conditioned states of mind and, and heart. And here he was saying that uh, nothing that we have in our experience 
can provide lasting satisfaction. You know, that no one experience, no one insight can give lasting experience. And he said that was a form of dukkha. And so we have uh, dukkha also uh, appears in the teaching, really what the teaching of the core insights. Those of you who've wondered what is insight meditation? In the tradition, the insights are around seeing into impermanence, seeing into dukkha, seeing into the uh, nature, I'm gonna say of reactivity, and then seeing into uh, the nature of the self, the teaching of not self, which I won't, won't go into so much. Now, I wanna say that the most important understanding of dukkha for our practice is understanding dukkha as reactivity. There are these other meanings, but it's reactivity which is the most important meaning. And that's brought out in a very fundamental teaching that I no doubt talked about more than once a year ago when I was here in May. And this is called the teaching of the two arrows. How many of you know that teaching some? It's really, I think this is a more concise and in some ways more clear version of the Four Noble Truths, which are sometimes taken to be the central teachings of Buddhism. This is teaching of the two arrows. And it goes like this. The Buddha was talking to a group of practitioners and he asked them, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. How does a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner. And by non-practitioner, he was actually meaning those of us who call ourselves practitioners when we're not practicing. <laughs> you get my drift. Okay, so how does a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner? A non-practitioner, when having a difficult experience, an unpleasant experience, It'll look, it'll look this way. And so we keep, the, the Buddha in the text, this is a very short text, three or four pages, and the Buddha said that he was particularly talking about physically unpleasant experiences, but I'm gonna generalize to all types of unpleasant experiences. And he said, actually, there's no difference between a practitioner and a non-practitioner in the occurrence at times of unpleasant experiences. At times we have unpleasant physical experiences. We have injuries, we have illnesses, we have different kinds of pain associated with different parts of the life cycle and so forth. We also can have emotionally difficult experiences. We can have fear, anger, anxiety, irritation, whether just on our own or in relation to uh, other people in terms of relationships. And we can also have unpleasant experiences in relation to the social reality. We can experience unfairness, injustice, oppression, and so forth. At times we have each of those, as it were, three types of uh, unpleasant experiences. The Buddha said a, a practitioner and a non-practitioner does not differ at all in having those kind of experiences. We all have them. And the Buddha said, this is like being shot by an arrow. And he said that this is the first arrow. He calls this the first arrow. 
Where the difference is, he said, is that non-practitioners, remembering also that means us at certain times, okay, non-practitioners, because of the presence of the first arrow, will tend to shoot a second arrow at themselves or at others as if that would help. And I'm, I'm gonna say that the second arrow is reactivity. Okay, I'll, I'll explain that further. And so how do, how do we do that? Sometimes when we have unpleasant physical experiences, we tense around them. We can also, of course, blame ourselves, blame others. I stub my toe on something that my partner left on the floor and I have some unpleasant physical experiences and I blame my partner or I blame myself for being clumsy or I tense physically around the unpleasant physical sensations. Many people who've studied chronic pain say that for some types of chronic pain, not all, as much as 80% of what people experience as chronic pain is the reaction to the unpleasant experience, not the original experience, 80%. That's the second arrow. The Buddha is gonna say that the reaction to the first arrow is the second arrow. Second arrow is something that we don't have to shoot. That's, that's what the teaching is gonna be. But, but first, it's good to see what it is. So the second arrow can be there for physically unpleasant experiences. We know very well, I think, how it surfaces with unpleasant emotional experiences, unpleasant thoughts, unpleasant interactions with others. We may have something difficult happen, unpleasant experience, we blame ourselves for the next three hours, for the next three months, for the next three years, right? That's the second arrow. Or we blame someone else. Or we, uh, you know, we get into antagonism with someone else. And that other person then gets into antagonism with us. As it were, we shoot second arrows at each other. Rather, than actually just experiencing the first arrow. And so, of course, very similar on the social level, a large number of conflicts are we have received pain, we will react in turn and, and inflict pain on you. A large number of the conflicts in the world are people or groups shooting second arrows at each other and getting embroiled in second arrow conflicts which go on and on. And so the teaching is that the second arrow, I'm gonna say the difference is, we can use different language, that the first arrow, we could say the first arrow is pain and the second arrow is suffering if we make a technical distinction between them. I don't usually like to do that because pain and suffering are often used somewhat interchangeably and I find the language confusing. That's why I find without making this distinction, even fellow teachers who talk about dukkha as suffering, without being clear on the difference between the first and second arrow, it gets confusing. Because how would we understand the teaching of the Buddha, the end of dukkha? Certainly not the end of what's physically unpleasant, what's emotionally unpleasant. 
we, that never ends. It didn't end for the Buddha. When he was older, he had headaches, presumably unpleasant. What we would imagine is that he didn't shoot the second arrow because of the headaches. He also had backaches. I'm really glad that we have reports of those headaches and backaches in the text so that we're clear about that. So in any case, um, so, the, um, I like, so I like to use reactivity for the second arrow. And in the teaching of the two arrows, the reactivity is the pushing away compulsively, often automatically, of the unpleasant. There's, and one of the advantages of reactivity is that it also lets us talk about another form of reactivity, which is compulsively grabbing hold of what's pleasant. And the core of the teachings, I believe, is that we get knocked off center by the pleasant when we grab hold of it, grasp after it, and the unpleasant when we push it away. And the core teaching is that it's possible not to be reactive, not to be reactive, and to work through our reactivity. And I would summarize in ordinary English, the core teaching is that we can be responsive rather than reactive. That sounds rather modest, but I think if we actually look into it, it's very profound. That uh, responsiveness means that there's freedom. Responsiveness means that we are uh, both coming out of clear seeing without reactivity and that the heart's open. So I would say when we really unpack what it means to be responsive rather than reactive, in ordinary English, we have a sense that responsiveness means being connected with wisdom and love. And it takes that notion, and yet it's very ordinary English, but I find it helpful because then we can actually look, where am I reactive? In everyday life, in different places, and those are the places where uh, transformation occurs. You know, this large amount of our practice is seeing where we lose it or are reactive. And I get, as I said earlier, the other side is cultivating beautiful qualities. We do both. You know, and our practice is both, but there's a really important place for seeing where we get stuck, where we lose it. And when we get interested in how we lose it, and really explore how we lose it, our practice accelerates. This is not in the normal advertising for most meditation groups. Come, learn about your reactivity. Enjoy studying how you lose it. And it might be added, and be purified in the process. <laughs> Right? We don't have that. I, I, I looked up how it is at you know, my home center institution, Spirit Rock. You, you don't find it. It's all about come, develop mindfulness that helps you go beyond suffering. Very, you know, splendid words. In any case, I, I wanted to say that because when we actually get interested in reactivity, our practice accelerates. So let's look a little bit at the forms of reactivity and then how to work with it. And, that's, that's, and I'll complete the talk there. And I want, I want, you know, always my favorite part of being with a group or being with anyone 
is the interaction, the uh, communication back and forth, the questions and so forth. So what sort of ways are we reactive? And again, we can think of this in terms of grasping and pushing away reactively, whether it's something, somebody, some state of mind, or whatever. What are some of the ways that we grasp onto something? Anyone want to name something that you, or someone you maybe know, <laughs> if, it's, if not you, <laughs> something you grasp onto? Views and opinions, right? We grasp onto this is my view, I'm right. Has anyone ever done that? Okay. Three or four people out of the group. Okay. Um, what are some other things we grasp onto? Trying to save someone. What? Trying to save someone you love. Trying to save? Trying to save someone one loves. So one might grasp onto uh, sort of extreme situation of wanting the outcome that we want. And, you know, and grasping onto something doesn't mean that the object of it is not a good thing, but we're looking for the grasping. What, other, what are more common ways that we grasp? Yeah. Yeah. Intoxicants. Huh? Intoxicants. Intoxicants. We may grasp onto intoxicants. Of course, we may grasp onto food in all sorts of ways, right? pleasant tastes, and so forth. And again, the grasping is the kind of compulsive or automatic. It's, it's not the sense, it's distinguished from the sense of something being pleasant. That's a really key point. Um, that the grasping, we can be with something that's pleasant without grasping. I once told this to a group I was working with and said, we could sit here next week and eat chocolate the whole evening, and this would not necessarily be a problem. And they said, we'd like to explore that. <laughs> and so we did that. We ate chocolate and we noticed the grasping. You know, when is there grasping in terms of a pleasant state? Because the presence of the pleasant, again, is the converse of the, uh, or the, uh, the other way of teaching, the two arrows teaching, would be to say, one can just be with the pleasant, but then the reaction, the equivalent of the second arrow, is grasping onto it. The equivalent of the first arrow, which is not a problem, is just the presence of the pleasant. Really crucial point. So the grasping grasp onto the unpleasant or pleasant experiences, tastes, smell, and so forth, uh, outcomes. Uh, we can grasp onto you know, the outcome of a meeting, uh, views, and so forth. So we have a sense of the range, right? The range of grasping. What do we push away? Kind of the, maybe the other side of that. What do we push away reactively? What are some examples? Yeah. We push away pain. We push, you know, the first arrow. We don't like being sick, having an injury, pain in the moment when something happens. It's very deep conditioning, right? And it's, of course, it's not, again, not entirely negative. It's connected with survival in certain ways. And, and in the end, I'm going to be, not in the end, but in a while, I'm going to say that the really key thing is to, in our meditative practice and bringing that into daily life, investigate all this, look into it. So we have a sense of some of what we uh, 
grasp onto, some of what we push away. Again, we can grasp, we can push away other people's views. It's really the, the other side of what we were just mentioning. We can push away certain tastes, certain experiences, certain kind of interactions. Some people we find uh, we are reactive to in that way. So we have a, we have a, can have a sense of what we're looking at. And of course, this occurs in meditation all the time. You know, we have uh, experiences we don't like. I'm sitting here, I'm not concentrated enough, and I may blame myself. It's important to say that blaming, judgment, and so forth are very key ways that we uh, shoot the second arrow that we push away. So this is familiar to most of us. So how to work with, how to work with reactivity. And you know, if we were doing a, uh, another, if I was here next week, which I'd like to be, I'm really having a good time in Santa Fe. <laughs> you know, I, uh, yeah, I, I love New Mexico and it's really great to be here. I went to the Museum of the American Indian this afternoon and um, tried not to grasp. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. So, five ways to work with reactivity in daily life. And I'll go over these pretty briefly. This is like the guidance sheet or your, you know, you're the uh, mm, core, one, one way to express core instructions for working with reactivity. Number one, clarify your intention to do so. Again, intention is so crucial in our practice. So this would mean Maybe at the beginning of a day, setting an intention, I'm going to really look at reactivity today. I'm going to, I'm going to explore it. Maybe doing that a few times a day if you really want to look carefully at it. So setting the intention, maybe before a difficult meeting, say I'm going to go in and I'm going to really try to work with reactivity and not be caught by it as much as possible. So intention is so crucial. In the retreat that, we, that I co-taught with Oren Sofer on skillful speech, having the intention is the center of skillful speech, is basically having the center to connect through speech um, empathically with understanding. How can we keep that intention there as much as possible? That was one way to say at the center of our teaching. You know, how do we do that? Not so easy, because again, when we're reactive, we often forget our good intentions, right? There's a nice, there's a Tibetan saying, which I like a lot. When the sun shines and my belly is full, I look like a Dharma practitioner. <laughs> but it is when troubles arise that my faults are exposed. <laughs> right, so, like I said, we have to have some interest in having our radar out for when we get reactive, and then saying, ah, oh, a chance for practice, wonderful. Time to grow, learn, and purify the residuals of my conditioned mind. Oh. <laughs> Good. Yeah, so if you're at a meeting and someone says something nasty, thank you so much, now I get to purify the residuals of my reactive and conditioned mind, thank you so much. <laughs> Very much, you've probably heard the Dalai Lama say, you know, my, of the Chinese, my friends, my enemy, they help me to practice, right? You've probably heard those kind of states. That's the spirit, right? So the second is a um, very important point is know the level of intensity 
of, that, of what leads you to be reactive. A point that's not always made in, in teaching on this or in related topics. Know the level of intensity because there's some levels of intensity that are not workable. That we can't use, for example, mindfulness to study reactivity because that's going to be the third, study reactivity. Look at, look at it, see what's there. If the level of intensity that leads us to be reactive is too strong where we're, you know, I like to use uh, a scale of one to 10 with 10 being the most intense. And we might say that for many of us, when it gets to level nine or 10, uh, we're lost in it. It's too much. We, it's not really workable. You know, and it could be, you know, for anyone who has residues of trauma, it would mean we, the trauma is there. And some, you know, in trauma, uh, you know, the reptilian brain takes over, the neocortex doesn't have much of a chance to function. So we can't really use mindfulness or even wisdom then. And then, you know, and when, so know the level of intensity and then have strategies to, as it were, reduce the level of intensity and get out of being stuck for any of one's own particular patterns. That's the second guideline for working with reactivity. When it's too strong, you know, if I'm just really angry at what happened with someone and it's too much to be mindful, know some strategies that help me come back to balance. You know, maybe I you know, do something physical, take a walk, talk to a friend. Some forms of meditation like loving kindness can be, if we have pretty well-developed loving-kindness, it can be quite strong because it's a concentration practice. And concentration can often cut through even high-level uh, reactivity. So have your own uh, set of ways to come out of being stuck, lost, in something that's too intense to be mindful of. Okay. Number three, investigate and be mindful and study reactivity. Explore what it's like. Become experts on your main five forms of reactivity. Take notes on them. Write poems about them. That was the joke. <laughs> but, but to really explore how reactivity appears in your mind. You can use the method that many of you know called RAIN, developed by Michelle McDonald, where we recognize what's happening we uh, allow it to be there, not fighting it, and then we investigate it. What's it like in the body? And really feel it with mindfulness. What's the narrative or storyline? What's going on in the emotions? What happens when it changes? And this can be incredibly illuminating. You know, I, I once had a retreat where I was angry for 10 days in a row at a retreat about 15 hours a day. It's a whole story as to why that was happening, but, but I, it was in the workable range. It wasn't too intense. Kind of interesting, like being angry in the middle range of anger for 10 days in a row. And I was working with Jack Kornfield as a teacher. He gave me really good guidance. He said, study it. And so I would actually take notes after every session about what had happened. And after, then after four or five days, I had a flow chart of my anger. It was fascinating. It was really amazing. I, anger was never the same. I saw there were multiple forms of anger. Sometimes anger was petty. Sometimes it was, uh, came out of 
beneath it was sadness and beneath the sadness was love. And I was really, you know, I was really angry, but when I went into it, it was coming out of, oh, this is really important for me and I love, you know, I love, uh, in this case, it was the community. And I could see that. And with, if I didn't be mindful of the anger, I wouldn't have known that. Really, really crucial. You know, therapists often say that anger is a cover emotion. When you stay with it, sometimes you see, ah, oh, look at that, it's connected with something else. It's, there's some wound there and other emotions are there. You know, and sometimes my anger was like I was a, uh, a Hebrew prophet. And I, was, I would say, you can do what you want, but if you don't get yourself together, you will suffer. <laughs> and sometimes it was like that. So the investigation can be amazing, right? And I'm sure many of you have done this a lot, but it's just to have that spirit of inquiry, really looking into uh, reactivity. Again, the tendency will be just to want to get rid of it, but can we look into it? And particularly some of the patterns which are repetitive, which come back, you know, some of our own tendencies. And then the, the fourth is to, uh, the fourth guideline is to bring in the heart practices, bring in loving kindness and compassion, because generally reactivity is unpleasant and painful. Even when we think that it's pleasant, the reactivity of grasping often feels pleasant, but there's something when we look carefully at it, it's not so pleasant. And we know that sometimes when we're really grasping after food when we're full, you know, for example, you know, which most of us do at times, I imagine. And, and so bringing in the heart practices gives a balance. It also lets us be with intensity. And then the last guideline I want to give is find ways to bring non-reactivity into speech, communication, how we interact with others. And again, I could uh, talk a long time about that. We just did a whole retreat related to that. But this is to find ways of speaking in difficult situations where reactivity arises. How do we work with communication, speech? And I'm gonna to have to really uh, not say much there except to say that intention, we come back to intention's really crucial. And then having, having some tools to really connect more empathically with both ourselves and others when they're difficult circumstances. If we want to go more into that in the discussion, I could do so. That's, I mean, that's going to have to be a little bit abbreviated. So five ways to work with uh, reactivity. Intention, first. The second is, what was the second? Huh? No, yeah, thank you. So first, intention. Second, know the level of intensity. And if it's too intense, find ways to come back to balance. Third, study reactivity. And this is probably our, our central practice. Be mindful of it. Fourth, bring in the heart practices to help one with balance. And fifth, find ways to, to explore non-reactivity in our interactions and communication. Okay, so I could say more, but I'm, I wanna go to our interaction. So let me just finish. I had, oh, I had uh, just a few short readings. Maybe two. The first is from the poet uh, Yeats, and the second is from the Buddha. Yeats, it takes more courage to examine the dark corners of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on a battlefield. 
It takes more courage to examine the dark corners of your own soul than for a soldier to fight on a battlefield. That's what we're up to in the transformative process. And then closing with the Buddha, I have taught one thing and one thing only, dukkha, which I'm calling reactivity, dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. So, thank you. So in a way, this really is it's right at the center, isn't it? Again, I'm, I'm thinking that the center of our practice is working with reactivity on the one hand and cultivating beautiful states on the other. And of course, they're very interrelated. Sometimes one will uh, sort of be more of our center. We'll feel, oh, I'm really growing, I'm learning, I'm developing more of the beautiful qualities. And sometimes we'll be with reactivity where that feels eh, just a, a messy, sticky, period of time. But I'm not reactive. Am I? Okay. So um, questions, observations, comments? And do we use a microphone for this? Or do people just speak up and I repeat them? Do we have a second microphone? Oh, just the one. Okay. Um, so maybe I'll repeat them then. That might be the better. What do you usually do? So, whatever, okay. So meaning that you might hand the microphone over to the other side of the hall and bring it, so give some, giving someone a lot of exercise. Okay, okay. Um, okay, why don't we just try that? Oh, I'm just gonna shout. Okay. What, I forgot what the end was in rain. Oh, oh yeah, I didn't get to it. Yeah. That's right. The R is recognition. The A is allowing or sometimes accepting. The I is inquiry or investigation. The N is non-identification. In a way, it's like studying reactivity, almost like a scientist, without, without trying to make it change. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciated your using the word reactivity. Yeah. Right. Historically, yeah. That it's hard to really get at what he's referring to. Yeah. You're using the word reactivity, which is fantastic, because I think we all do that. We all know how to do that. Yeah. Now, and I thought that very helpful that we kind of find terms for both concepts. Or yeah. That become happy around the word. Yeah. It's not, a, it's not a literal translation uh, using reactivity for dukkha. Context where dukkha is, uh, is given a different function. But I think, in terms of getting at the core uh, understanding of what we're about, which I think would be expressed in the Four Noble Truths, I mean, some of you may have wondered why does the First Noble Truth talk about dukkha, the unpleasant, and the Second Noble Truth talk about grasping after the pleasant? You ever thought about that? It doesn't quite fit, right? You know. Uh, but it does fit if we think that the earth, these are the two aspects of reactivity. Then it fits. Otherwise, it's a little bit, could be a little bit confusing, right? Because we're, the, the first noble truth has to do with, it seems to have to do with the unpleasant. And there, the problem would be pushing it away. But it says that the cause of suffering is grasping after the pleasant. 
But what I'm, you know, I would say that if uh, that if we were to express it fully, would be that the first noble truth is about um, reactivity, and the second noble truth is unpacking it as grasping and pushing away. That's another way to say it. It's interesting. Yeah, that kind of came out of my own confusion, like coming to that understanding. Yeah, please. Yeah, I, as I've read the, uh, the teachings, sometimes sankara has been translated as volition, yeah. or, which really threw me because that seems like it's conscious, but yeah. it seems that the level of reactivity is very, can be very conditioned and conscious. Right. But secondly, you know, a little better, have a, your, your translation is really great. Uh, yeah. Because the second one I saw a lot is called mental factor. Right. And or mental formation sometimes. Yeah. yeah. My, my understanding is that these are these unconscious things that color the mind. Yeah. But uh, I'd like you to. Yeah, yeah. So a question about the, the term sankara, which was the third term in, in one of the most influential accounts of dukkha by the Buddha. Uh, Sankara Dukkha, this was the way that uh, really nothing in our mind, conscious or unconscious, can bring lasting satisfaction. So I've, uh, yeah, I think it refers to both conscious and unconscious mental, emotional material. And again, in, in the uh, Asian Buddhist languages, there's no distinction between the mind and emotions. You know, that there's no cognate for emotions, interestingly, in those languages. So, and that's why uh, the word uh, citta is usually translated by mind, which is problematic because in English we use both mind, you know, we would, re- it covers both what we would call mental and emotional. So, um, yeah, it, I think covers both unconscious and conscious. Yeah, and I think very, thanks for bringing it out that our reactivity can often be uh, deeply based on unconscious material. I think we know that very well. And you know that's why we find when we start exploring this, there's both a, um, a way that when we explore reactivity, some of it becomes kind of clear. But as we explore some types of reactivity, we actually go deeper into the unconscious mind. So example would be, and I, we look at this a lot when I teach on working with the judgmental mind because a lot of our most chronic judgments are deeply unconscious. You know, so if I have, if I was told when I was five, six, seven years old that this aspect of you is not okay, right? That goes underground, that goes unconscious and I have as an adult this lingering sense of not okayness which, you know, when something happens I go into a trance of reactivity. You know, I might be conscious of some of it, but a lot of it is very unconscious. Same thing at the level of social conditioning with any number of things, uh, race, gender. You know, what we saw in the last few weeks shows a lot of unconscious reactivity related to gender, doesn't it? You know, it's, it's, and it's, it, you know, some of it's conscious, but a lot of it is deeply unconscious old patterns. So. That's what makes actually the transformation of reactivity not just about the surface. 
So thank you for bringing that out. It, you know, it's really an, an important point. And does that make some sense? That we're reactive for all sorts of reasons. Some of it's personal history, which can be ancient and deep, right? That, you know, I, when I was eight, my parents divorced. I developed an unconscious view that if I get close to someone, they'll leave me. And I start being reactive when my partner wants to go away for the weekend, right? And it's hard to study that because it's, there's unconscious material, right? So, yeah, thank you. Other comments or questions, please? Yeah. Um, years, years and years ago, I went to an Al-Anon meeting. A little bit louder. Oh, years and years ago, I went to an Al-Anon meeting. Yeah. Yeah. And that was very um, astounding to me because I think I was so used to the idea of someone else is angry. Right. I would have to be angry. In other words, I'm swimming in that pool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I swim in or I, I'm not, I, I don't have to swim in that pool. Yeah. But that sort of separation. Um, and I often think of it when you walk into a room where it's very heated and everyone's having That's right. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful point that um, one way to say it would be that um, when other people have strong emotions, particularly where there's some reactivity involved, um, like in some types of anger or fear or uh, irritation and so forth, um, when I'm in the presence of that person, especially if it's directed towards me, if the anger is directed towards me, it's very hard not to get caught up in the same emotion. In other words, it's very hard to keep my center, to, in the language I was giving earlier, to be responsive rather than reactive. It's not easy, but that is our intention. That's the intention of this practice. And of course, you know, the way to practice is to look at the different situations in our life and have a kind of hierarchy of going from easy to harder and practice with the easier, moderate situations. You know, that's a way to develop, right? Because if we just, if we just say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm in level eight, nine, 10, time to do my practice with reactivity, that's not gonna work well. It's gonna be when we have the threes and fours and fives, which actually maybe aren't really a big deal, but I'm still a little reactive. Can we study those and work with those? And then we'll be better with the strong ones. But I think you're, you're very right that when emotions come at us, again, particularly if the content is directed towards me, anger or something like that, it's very hard not to be reactive in turn. Right? And again, we can do that with easier situations. If a, if a child is very reactive towards me, it may be easier for most of us, not, not all the time, but easier just to keep the balance and say, now, now, you know, you're feeling pain or say that in our minds. And, and be responsive, comforting, etc. Whereas an adult does that, uh-uh, <laughs> right, it's harder, right? And so we have to practice where there's a little more ease, where it doesn't matter quite as much. That's how, you know, so that's another pointer in terms of practicing. Have a hierarchy of types of situations and practice with the uh, easier and moderate ones, yeah.
Anything else before we, I could, I, like, I would like to keep going for a long time, but we're getting towards the end of our, our time. Anything else that was not said or expressed wants to come out before we finish? I was uh, struck by the image of a warped axle. Yeah. And uh, I mean, what would be an example of that? Because most of the, the what we've been looking at are uh, particular incidents. Yeah. And, and so then the issue that raises the issue of recurrence. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the warped axle is related to that uh, core meaning of, of dukkha as unpleasant. It doesn't refer to the meaning of dukkha as reactivity. So it really is about sometimes there are moments in life when it just doesn't feel right. right? So that's what it's really referring to. I see that. Yeah, that it's just these moments. Again, I stub my toe. I have an interaction at work that just didn't go right, you know, and I come back, you know, right, or, and that's, that's, I think, what the warp axle is pointing to, that these types of situations are part of life, yeah. And again, it's one of the meanings of dukkha. I'm, I'm suggesting it's not the central meaning of dukkha for our practice. The central meaning of dukkha for our practice is what I'm saying, is the meaning of dukkha as reactivity. It's confusing because, again, you read the text and you'll find, you know, at least four or five different meanings of dukkha. And because the texts weren't written down, no one went through and said, okay, there are five meanings of dukkha. Here's the central one and here are some secondary ones. They tried to do that in later years. But, you know, so. Good, so again, if I, oh, maybe last one, okay. Yeah, well, a, a colleague of mine and I are collaborating. Uh, I'm bringing in that, yeah, we're, do, we're bringing forth uh, the work of Byron Katie in coordination with the work on transforming the judgmental mind that I've developed. And we're going to be collaborating and using um, several sets of tools. But we, my uh, colleague, Marisa Handler, is, um, you know, is you know, trained in that approach. And we'll be, we'll be using both approaches. But for people who don't know, uh, Byron Katie has a form of inquiry, which is really particularly directed at uh, looking for where we're really caught in fixed views, caught in uh, essentially, we would say, attachment to views and how that is linked to, you know, we could say is a form of reactivity. Yeah. So we'll be, we'll be bringing those together. First time we're doing it. But I think there's... There's a lot there, you know, her method is very, very simple. Very, very simple. How many of you know her work? Oh, a lot, wow. Yeah, so it's, it's an exploration, but, and uh, it's a non-residential retreat at Spirit Rock, just three days, but you're very welcome. So, okay, well, let's, um, let's finish up. Like I say, if I was coming back next week, or maybe even if I'm not, I would encourage you to consider really uh, working with reactivity in the next week. Maybe even if I'm, I'm not intending to be here in a week, you never know. <laughs> but um, how many of you would like to explore reactivity in the ways I've suggested for the next week? Okay, that's great. It can really be a, 
instructive. And, you know, if you want to continue beyond that, it can be really, you know, to do that for a protracted period of time can be very illuminating. And again, it's simple, but it gets us right into the center of what we're doing. You know, I mean, you're already doing it, but this gives maybe a little more specificity. So set your intention if you'd like to work with it. And if you, even if you're not intending to do so, see if there's an intention which comes out of our evening. Could be related to the topic or maybe something different, maybe something else struck you and you have a, some other intention. And then we close with the very traditional dedication of merit, which is to remember that we do this practice very much for ourselves, but also for others. And may the fruits and benefits of our evening be there for all of us, be there for all of the beings in our lives. And may it go beyond those circles to be offered to all beings. May the benefit and fruits of our evening be there for all beings, always remembering that we are part of all beings. So thank you very much. And yeah, I wish we could meet next week, but I'll be in Albuquerque on Thursday. <laughs> I think they invited me to talk on how we work with differences of views. Mm. Okay. So thank you so much and may, may your practice prosper and great purification and transformation occur. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.